You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Our second reading today comes from the letter to the church in Asia Minor. It is a letter that we know as 1 Peter. It is written not so much to a single church as to a collection of churches. Churches that are made up primarily of people who are new to the faith. People who were Gentiles before receiving the good news of the gospel and who are now confessing Christians. But if they had been under the belief that once they said yes to following Christ, life would suddenly be easy, they have now learned the hard way. But that is not so. For things are not easy for those to whom this letter is addressed. So let us continue listening now for a word from God as we hear these verses from the third chapter of 1 Peter, beginning with the 13th verse. The author writes, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness. And with reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing what is evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through the water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, Living Between the Times. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, in this great in-between, in between the busyness of life and all that is still ahead, in between the hopes of today and the worries of tomorrow, in between where we are and where we yearn to be. We pray that your spirit would rest upon us in this moment, in this space. Indeed, O oh God, we pray that through your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight would be pleasing and glorifying to you. 
You and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I spent the first half of last week visiting with a group of clergy in Indianapolis. We worshiped together. We got toured around to different sites in that city doing innovative and creative ministry, including a visit to the Lilly Endowment, one of the largest endowments in the United States. This year alone, we learned they have by mandate have to give away over one billion with a B dollars to civic and religious endeavors. But one of the neatest parts of this time together was the learning we did. Dr. Ted Smith, a professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, came up and he presented to us two of the mornings on the topic of congregations between the times. He walked us through the history of the church in America all the way from pre-revolutionary times to today, and he paused to instruct us on some of the key moments on that timeline when the church went through upheaval, when the church went through dramatic change, right? Those points in time where people entered into a time, the church entered into a time and gradually realized that all the old ways of doing things, all that they thought they had known was being unraveled until sometime down the road, years, decades in some cases, the church emerges on the other side. It always emerges intact, Dr. Smith told us, but different. But he was most interested in teaching us on what it's like to be in one of those between the times times. One of those moments in history when everything is unraveling and yet everything is still unclear about how it will all turn out. It will probably come as no surprise to any of you that part of the reason he's so interested in this research is because he has diagnosed our current time as being just one of those moments in the history of the church. That we, as a big church and as a church here, are living between the times. You don't have to look far or employ much creative imagination to realize that we are living in a time where there are powerful social forces that are driving things like individualization and eroding our trust and our participation in all kinds of institutions, the church included, of course. What does it mean to be a church, to be a people between the times? As I was listening to Dr. Smith, I kept thinking about these verses that I knew we would be reading in worship today because it occurred to me as I listened that the congregations that 1 Peter is addressed to are a collection of churches that are also living between the times. As I said before we read our scripture The churches there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, they were populated by Gentile believers. So these were not Jewish believers who had had some semblance of knowledge and faith in the Hebrew scriptures before coming to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. No, these were people who really had no concrete belief set before someone came and shared the gospel. 
And they began to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet what they had found in these early years of their faith is that everything is coming unraveled. Right here they are following the commands of the scriptures. They're going out and they're showing generosity, hospitality to their neighbors. They're loving people that prior to becoming a Christian, they would never have even thought they should pay any light of day, much less care for them. These are people who are going out and they're telling the truth the best way they know how. The truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ has opened their eyes and their hearts to. But the reception to that generosity and that love and that truth telling, well, it's been lukewarm at best. In fact, what has happened as a result of all those things is that opposition has begun to arise in their homes, and in their neighborhoods, right? They are facing, First Peter tells us, persecution in a way none of us, I bet, can really imagine. This is persecution that is being leveled upon them by their neighbors, right? The people who they used to have barbecues on the back porch and watch Sunday night football with are now the ones who are maligning them. They are now the ones who are being cruel to them. They are now the ones who are inflicting suffering upon them. Five times in just these verses that word suffer or suffering appears. And it's important for us to note that it's a particular kind of suffering. This is not the kind of suffering most of us are most accustomed with. The suffering that comes with the grief and the heartbreak at the loss of a loved one. The kind of suffering that comes with a diagnosis of some severe illness. The kind of suffering that is manifested in physical pain. Now these people, of course, experience all that kind of suffering. But the suffering that we are addressing here is the kind of suffering that comes when someone we know and love begins to treat us poorly. Begins to inflict cruelty and pain upon our lives and the lives of those we love. And so we meet a people in these verses who are searching. The congregations First Peter has written to are churches full of people who are searching for hope. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for encouragement. Heck, most of them are probably just searching for the strength to hold on for just one more day. Because it looks awfully good to leave all this church business behind and just get back to living their lives the way they had known it before. Anyone here searching? Anyone here trying to make sense of the suffering, maybe in your own life, but also the suffering of our world? This world that we look out upon and we see people who just tell lie after lie after lie and they're almost deified. This world in which we live where the wicked seem to be put up on a pedestal and the righteous seem to be ground into the dirt. Anyone else trying to make sense of this world where innocent life is just snatched away like that? One of our stops earlier this week 
I forget which one it was, but we all piled out of the van that we've been driven around in. And, and there were three flags in front of the building we were visiting and all three flags were at half mass. And someone said, why are they half mass? Someone else said, I don't know, Texas. And someone else said, well, the, the strip mall in Texas or the person who drove their car through the crowd. Someone else said, maybe Nashville, but uh, that was a month ago. Couldn't be Nashville, could it? I mean, aren't we all trying to make sense of a world where conversations like that are commonplace? Aren't we all searching? Searching for hope, perhaps, in the data and the headlines that tell us that times are a-changing, but don't quite make clear for us which direction that change is leading? Perhaps you're searching for encouragement in your own in-between-the-times. Encouragement for this period of your life where you're in between a relationship, a friendship, in between a marriage, a job, in between homes, in between cities, in between maybe even churches. Aren't we all searching? Maybe you're like some of those folks in those churches that First Peter writes to, someone who's just searching for the strength to keep on going to keep putting one foot in front of another. On our second to last day, our host uh, took us to the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Incredible museum. They had this whole uh, exhibit going on impressionism, impressionistic painters. It was one of these where you walk into this room and they've put all the art into motion. It was something else. You literally walk on the art. You can walk up and touch the art on the walls. It's just projections of color and art all around you. Towards the end of the exhibit, you walk out into a more sort of typical art exhibit, and there was information displayed on most of the main impressionistic painters of that 19th century French movement. There were exhibits about Monet and Manet and Degas, but the one that I found most interesting was the information provided about Mary Cassatt. You all know that name? It's a name I've known all my life, and I recognize some of her work, of course, but I never really stopped to learn much about her. She was a 19th century American impressionistic painter who moved to France towards the beginning of that movement and got caught up in the wave of all those other masters and became a master in her own right, ended up living the whole rest of her life there in France, painting. What I thought was interesting in the description of her, though, was not just that she was an American who had made France and this movement her home, but also that she was a woman who had been a fierce advocate for women's rights all of her life. But she had never married, never had children, and yet some of her most famous images, the images that she is most well-known for, are these images that portray parents, and particularly mothers, and their children. In these paintings, if you go and you look through them online or if you have been to a museum and seen a similar kind of of exhibit, you notice that what she was really a master of was capturing these incredibly ordinary moments. And yet in her painting, capturing the closeness and the connection of those people who she depicts there. One of her most famous works is called Boating Party. Some of you may know which one I'm talking about. If not, you can pull out your phones. You have permission if you want to look it up. I didn't get this in time to have it up on the screens. 
but it's a, a painting of a beautiful sunny day. There's a rowboat, and the foreground of the painting is the back of a man who is rowing, but this rowboat also has a sail. And then the main uh, subjects of the painting are a mother and her child who are there in the bow of the boat. And it's incredible because it's one of these images, the more you look at it, the more it kind of pulls you in. Because initially you look at it and you think, here is a group of people having a lovely day out on the water. A beautiful, sun-filled, blue sky kind of day. But the closer you look, the more you notice that the water seems awfully choppy. And that sail in the rowboat, it is full of wind. And you start to wonder, as someone who gets seasickness, if perhaps they're all really having the best of days out there on the water. Even when you look at the mother's face in this painting, it's something between happiness and trepidation. You don't see a big smile on her face. You don't see a big frown either. But you see someone who is paying close attention. And you wonder, is she enjoying this trip out on the water? Or is she anxious with all that choppiness, all that wind, and a little child in her arms who I should note does not have a life preserver on? And speaking of that child, when you look at the child, he's sort of sprawled across his mother's lap. And as anyone who has held a child in that state, it can mean one of two things. Either the child is trying to get the heck out of his mom's arms, jump overboard, go for a swim maybe, and she's holding on to him for dear life, or he's getting tired and he's about to fall asleep. I was drawn to this image as I was reading about Mary Cassatt because it seemed to capture so perfectly a scene that many of us are well accustomed to. Those moments when we struggle to sense whether all of life is sunshine or if there is a storm that is brewing. But there's something incredible in this painting. And it's the thing that stuck with me most. It's that embrace of the mother wrapping up her child. There is this very real sense when you look at it that no matter what is really happening there in that moment, that child is safe. That child is secure in his mother's arms. It made me think back to that talk that we had been living in for two days at that point. That talk about life between the times. Right There's an instruction in that painting almost, an instruction that tells us that even when the suffering is great, the suffering within and the suffering that others are pressing in on us, even when we might be the ones who are searching for answers that seem to elude us at every turn, even when we find it hard to keep doing what is good. It's really interesting in this letter, I find, that the author of 1 Peter does not offer trite answers to their suffering. 
If you go and read these verses over and over again for weeks or years on end, you will not find a clear answer to why these churches and these believers are enduring the pain and suffering they are. But it does offer advice. And the advice that the letter writer offers is this. Keep on striving to do what is good. Even when you find yourselves in that great in-between, you can always choose to keep on doing what is good. And why would we keep on doing what is good? Because that is the example of Christ himself. One who knew suffering through all of his days. One who was persecuted outside and inside and yet chose to keep doing what was right, what was just, what was good, even to the point of death on a cross. Right, that painting It reminded me that even when we are the ones searching, even when we are living those between the time times, what God does for us is exactly what the mother in that painting does for her child. God wraps us in God's arms and refuses to let go. In just a few moments, we're going to affirm our faith together using words that come from a confession that is known as the brief statement of faith. This is a confession that was written around the time of reunification of the Southern and Northern Presbyterian churches. There's a line elsewhere in that confession that goes like this. It's a line I often use in the context of funerals when we need something to hang on to as we find ourselves in a great in-between time between the death of our loved one and when we will see them again. It's this line in this statement of faith that says something like, like a mother who will not forsake her nursing child, or we might substitute today, like a mother who will not relinquish the grip on her child, like a father who runs to welcome the prodigal home, it says. God is faithful still. As I listened to Dr. Smith's talk, I struggled to grasp onto what I was supposed to take away from it. What do you do with this information that just paints the picture we all already know, which is everything is coming unraveled and it's terrifying because we don't know quite how it's going to come back together again. I struggled to grasp onto what I should take away from that talk. But you know, friends, maybe that's it. Maybe what we are meant to live by in these in-between times is the fact that even when we find our own lives coming unraveled and the lives of those around us doing the same, we are called to hang on to the good news that God is faithful still. It's maybe not the most satisfying or clear answer, but it is the truth. And maybe the truth of God's faithfulness this day and in the days to come, no matter where they lead us, maybe that truth of God's faithfulness is enough to help us stay the course. Just as it was enough for those churches that 1 Peter was being written to to stay the course, maybe that truth of God's faithfulness 
is enough for us to. Maybe it's enough for each of us to keep on putting one foot in front of another, following in the direction that God is leading and the sure and true hope that one day we too will find home. One day we too will arrive at that moment where all things are gathered up together. All things in God's sight, seen and known and loved. Friends, in these in-between times, may we walk by the light of that truth. Amen.